0: Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, "'Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you.' "'What do you want me to do for you?' he asked them. They answered, "'Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory.' But Jesus said to them, "'You don't know what you're asking.' Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people told him to be quiet, but he was crying out all the more. Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabuni, the blind man, told him, I want to see. Go your way, Jesus told him, your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road.
1: Good evening, six forty-five. My name is JJ. It's great to see you here. Uh, particularly warm welcome to you if you're new. This is your first time here. We love having visitors. Uh, we're a church that loves spending time looking at God's word together, the Bible, thinking hard about what it has to say. And we're going to do that now. We're going to spend some time uh, looking at God's word. You've got an outline there in front of you. Just to let you know uh, where we'll be going tonight, and so you can take notes if you want to do that. But keep your Bibles open to tonight's passage, Mark chapter ten, verse thirty-two to fifty-two, as we come to look at God's word. Uh, but I wonder if you've ever misread a situation completely the wrong way. You've completely misunderstood what is actually taking place. You think you get what is going on. You've heard the words. You can kind of you scan the scope of the horizon. The, you, you think, I, I get this. Well, I've interpreted this correctly. Uh, this kind of happened to me when I met Bernie. Uh, the first time uh, we ever, Bernie's my wife, by the way, first time uh, we uh, kind of ever served together, hung out, was at this thing called Katoomba Easter Convention. It's a convention that happens in Katoomba at Easter. And so we were serving together on this conference, and, and I thought she was totally into me. She was laughing at my jokes. She was being kind. She was listening intently. She was just being so nice to me. I thought, I am in. This girl is so keen. It's not funny. Turns out she was just being her. She's just really nice, intentive, and likes to listen to people. She wasn't into me at all. Uh, and if you're wondering how we got together, well, come and talk to me a little later on, and you will determine that it is the fact the sovereignty of God that has made that happen. But in today's passage, the disciples do something very similar. They hear Jesus' words. They understand where they're headed. They're headed towards Jerusalem, but they completely misread the situation. They don't actually understand why Jesus has come and what he actually wants from his followers. So let's pray that God would help us not to be like the disciples in the passage, but instead be people who understand what he's saying to us in his words tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in it, it is truth and life. Lord, we pray that you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. You might humble us where we need to be humbled. You might comfort us where we need to be comforted. And you might reassure us where we need reassurance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've often heard Christians, well-meaning Christians say, I wish I could just be there when Jesus was around. 2,000 years ago, I just wish I could be around when he calms the storm, when he fed the 5,000, when he preached that amazing Sermon on the Mount. I wish I could have witnessed that uh, firsthand. I wish I could have followed him on his journey to Jerusalem. And when I hear that, it sounds really good. It sounds right. Being a firsthand eyewitness, that would be fantastic, you think. But generally, when people say that, I don't think they get what they're really saying. Because you see, the disciples experience the word that is used very often in the Gospel of Mark to describe their experience of following Jesus is the word fear or afraid. So the disciples basically spent three years in fear, hanging around with this guy, Jesus. And we see it there again in verse 32, where it says, Have a look at me. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were were afraid you see they're afraid and they're astonished and why are they astonished and afraid well it could be that jesus just told them just a bit before that eternal life the road to eternal life means losing friends it means losing family it means losing possessions it means getting persecuted for following him that could be why they're afraid it could be that they're afraid because they've finally figured out that they're heading towards jerusalem See, for the last three years, what have these guys been doing with Jesus? They've been hanging up in the north of Israel, hanging up in Galilee, going around, watching him do his thing, and the crowds are flocking to this man. They love him. They hang on every single word he has to say. They love the things that he's doing. But now they realize they're heading to Jerusalem. And during Jesus' ministry and during his life... Every single enemy has come from this place. The scribes from Jerusalem, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, the chief priests from Jerusalem come and they say, we are going to kill Jesus. And so they might be thinking, why would we go to the place where your enemies are? Or it could be that they're thinking, we're afraid because of the amazing things that we've seen. It's one thing to read about the coming of the storm, that Jesus speaks and in a nanosecond. The storm that is raging, gone it's another it's another thing to watch a demon man have his kind of a demon possessed man have demons cast out from his body you can read about those things but seeing them would probably be pretty scary whatever the reason for their fear what i love is that jesus does nothing to calm it in this chapter because the third time he tells them why he he has what he's about to do that he's about to suffer and die on the cross so verse 33 he says listen We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. And now, this is the third time. This is the third time Jesus has made this prediction to his disciples about his death. And each time, the basic facts are there. He says, I will be killed, and three days later, I will rise. He says it in chapter 8, he says it in chapter 9, and he says it again now here in chapter 10. And each time, he introduces a little bit more information for his disciples to grasp what is about to happen. In chapter 8, he kind of just says, I'm going to be killed. It's very basic. He says, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to rise again. In chapter 9, he focuses on the fact that one of his disciples, one of the 12, one of the people who are closest to him, with the one who betrays him, to hand him over to death. But now here, we're given more information about what's going to happen. And the big point is that my rejection will be total. He says, yes, I'll be condemned by the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, by the Jewish people, by my own people. But everyone else is going to join in too. Because it is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations who will be the ones who make sure I'm dead. They will be the ones who kill me. And he's really making the point that we so often as people miss. And that is that everyone in the world was complicit in Jesus' death. It wasn't just the Jews, it's the Gentiles as well that joined in. And it's actually quite a symbolic statement that he's making here. The whole world is complicit in the rejection of God's anointed king. But the other focus is the depth of the suffering and humiliation that Jesus would face. See, Jesus just didn't die. In fact, have you ever noticed when you read the crucifixion uh, accounts about Jesus' death, how few words are actually dedicated to the moment of his death? There's three chapters in Mark's gospel about the crucifixion, and they're all pretty much about his suffering about his rejection, about the shame that he went through, how he was spat on, how the people whipped him and beat him and abused him and put a crown of thorns on his head and pretended to worship him, how he suffered on the cross under the wrath of God. And the focus isn't so much how he breathed his last breath, but the focus is the whole thing, the extent of Jesus' suffering for us. And that's what he's telling them here. He says, I'm not... Going just to die, I'm going to be mocked and spat on and flogged. I'm going to be humiliated. That is what I'm going to do. I am going to just suffer. And the disciples, they still don't get it, do they? And it's easy kind of to make fun of the disciples about how thick and slow these guys are. How don't they get it? It's just so obvious the third time he's kind of predicted his death for them. Why, why don't they just understand but we need to remember that for them to grow this is so far out the realms of their possibility, out the thoughts of their mind, that God's anointed king, the Son of Man, could actually suffer in this way. See, the title the Son of Man in the Old Testament is the person who God would give all authority and power for all time that God would make sure this person reigns forever, and that God would make the Son of Man suffer and die, Well, they can't possibly grasp that. They can't contemplate it. It's not even in the realm or the scope of their vision. How could that be? It's only later after Jesus has died and risen back to life, they're like, that's what he meant. Now we get it. Because you see, you and I have such a better view than them. We have the whole story. We've got Genesis all the way through to Revelation. We've got the apostles explain to us what it is they saw and what it is it means for us. And so we understand the humiliation and the pain and the death and the suffering and what that means. Because Jesus was telling them the gospel, that he would die, that their sins would be paid for, that he would rise again to give them eternal hope. But they didn't have the perspective to understand it properly. as if to confirm just how little they get it the next incident we get really just kind of shows us that they don't understand uh, in Mark's gospel in verse 35 it starts with the word then that is while the words of jesus suffering and shame are still kind of hanging in the air it is then that james and john think you know what This is a great time to go and ask Jesus that question that's kind of been bugging us for a little bit. And so they kind of head on over, and they kind of have, I think, one of these moments where you say something, and as soon as you've said it, you wish you could just kind of take the words and shove them back into your mouth. I've been married for over 10 years now, and that happens to me on a daily basis. I say something, and I think, oh, just stop. In fact, I have conversations pretty much every single day like that with a lot of people, and I just think, oh, back in my mouth. But here are John and James, and I think they would have had the same experience. As soon as they had kind of said their words, they might have been thinking, why did we ask him? Why did we say this to him? Because they come up and they ask Jesus, you know what? When you enter your glory, can we be the best? Can we be the best like you? Because that's what they ask. It's a bit like a, a husband. It's a bit like, sorry, they've heard Jesus say the word, Jerusalem. And everything else from that point on in their minds has been blah, 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 blah. It's a bit like a man or a husband watching TV and your wife is trying to talk to you. You know she's saying something important, but you are so focused on what's happening on the screen, you block out everything else. This happens to me all the time. Bernie's like, Joshua, 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 Joshua. And then she's like, Joshua. I'm like, were you speaking to me? And she's like, I've been saying your name for about a minute. I'm like, I, 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 My brain can't do two things. This is what is happening for these guys. They hear Jerusalem, and that's all they hear. Because they're thinking, what's Jerusalem? What is Jerusalem for the Messiah? Well, that's the place of the Messiah's kingship. That's the place of his reign and his glory. That is where he will be enthroned in Jerusalem. And so they start dreaming. Maybe Jesus is heading to get his crown placed on his head and people coming to worship him from all over the world. Maybe he's about to get his glory. And so they sidle over to Jesus. They say, you know what? When you are glorified, when you're sitting on your throne and everyone sees you for who you truly are and they worship you like they rightly should, can we please have the best seats can I be on the right and him on the left? Or vice, versa? we don't care. It's an incredibly human request. They were just normal human beings because it's how people think. They were ambitious. They were proud and they saw an opportunity for greatness. But before we judge them too hardly, would we actually be any different? And it seems like Jesus kind of Is understanding this time. Because at other times, he's been really quick to rebuke the disciples when they kind of misunderstand what he came to do. Remember the first time Jesus predicts? Then what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and says, no, you can't die. You can't suffer. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But there's no get behind me, Satan, at this moment. And if I was Peter, I would probably be having that first child experience. You know, that one where... You don't get to get away with everything. But if you're the youngest child, you get it to get away with everything. He might be thinking, what is that? No, get behind me, Satan. What? This is ridiculous. I can't understand that you'd just be so gentle and loving and kind with these guys. But Jesus takes the moment to gently teach them something incredibly profound and incredibly important. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? See, it's a bit cryptic. And what's he talking about? Well, back in the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath was a major theme. Major theme for God's people. They would have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Israel would have to drink the cup of God's wrath for their sin against him. Jeremiah says they would have to drink it to the dregs for the rejection of God as their Lord and as their King. And so they were punished. They were sent into exile for 70 years. The destruction of the 10 northern tribes, they're wiped from the face of the planet. And Jesus is talking to them about what is going to happen to him on the cross. He says, I'm going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. I'm going to take the punishment for your sins. In the same way, Jesus talks about his death as his baptism. See, we so often think about baptism as this like kind of lovely special moment at the front of church. Uh, we have confirmation and baptism here uh, at, at Northmead every year. And it's great. We see, see people stand up and declare their faith in front of us all. But before it was a symbol, it was a reality for Jesus. See, in our baptism, we symbolize that someone has died to sin and we baptize them. But Jesus is saying, this is my baptism. I don't get washed with water. My baptism is nails hammered into my hands and my feet. A crown of thorns placed on my head. I get to hang on the cross as I suffer and bleed out and the world scorns and mocks me. That's my baptism. You see, that is the incredible paradox at the heart of the gospel. Because when and where is Jesus... Most glorified? What is his most glorious moment? Where does everyone try to truly see for him, for who he really is? Where is his glory most profoundly seen? It's not sitting on a throne with people on his left and his right, it's when he's crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem with criminals on his right and on his left. Because it is in that moment that he shows the depths of God's amazing love by drinking the cup of wrath of God for you. Jesus is trying to gently say to James and John, when you ask, can you sit on my right and my left when you be glorified, you don't actually get what you're asking. Because being next to me in my glory means hanging on a cross. But in their naivety, they say to Jesus, you know what? We think we could do this. We've got this, buddy. We can do it. Don't worry. And so Jesus gently tells them, yes, you will suffer for me. You will drink the cup. You will be baptized with my baptism. But not in the same way. But it did come true. James was the first apostle killed. And John saw his life out in exile and in prison. Jesus says, you will suffer, but not with me. Because all of you, you will desert me. But at this point, we switch from um, from these two to the other disciples. Because when the other 10 hear what James and John have been up to, well, they're not happy. Verse 41, when the other 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And I kind of get the feeling that it was kind of this self-righteous indignation. They might have said to James and John, I can't believe that you would ask Jesus a question like that. Asked to sit at his right and his left. I mean, the guy's just been talking about his death and you'd possibly go up and ask, how, how crass of you? Because they're probably thinking to themselves, that's what we're about to do and how dare you get there before us? And that's just the way human beings work. We think to ourselves, I deserve more. That's just sinful human nature to, des- to desire a special seat, to desire glory. So Jesus calls his 12 over. And he teaches them something that is at the very center of Christianity. That he's in fact the servant Christ. He's in fact the servant king. We we used to sing this lame song about it. This is our God, the servant king. But it's actually the truth that is at the heart of Christianity. Have a look at verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high position exercise power over them. He says, you don't need me to tell you this, says Jesus. We don't need him to tell us that. We get that's how the world works. Because you get authority so you can tell people what to do. No one ever thinks to themselves, you know what? I really hope I can get powerful and rich so I can go and serve other people. That's not how power works. But Jesus says, not with us. Verse 43. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Now please don't let these words just wash over you because you're familiar with them. This is the most radical agenda that has ever been taught in human history. This isn't some nice little piece of philosophy, some little saying that you can kind of put up on a magnet with a cat in the background on your fridge to make yourself feel better about being a Christian. No, greatness in the kingdom of God is totally different from greatness from, uh, uh, from the kingdom of the world. And in fact, if you want to be great in the eyes of the world, then let me tell you, get used to being insignificant In the kingdom of God. Because greatness in the kingdom of God will make you look like a fool in the world. It will make you look insignificant in the world. Because the great ones in God's eyes are the ones who will give up everything and anything to serve other people. That's what it means for you to be great. The more a person gives up to serve others means they are greater in the eyes of God. The great one is not the one who goes looking for glory. The great one is not the one who needs people to tell them how amazing job they are doing at serving others. They don't need people to be watching all their movements so they can say, yes, that person, that is a good person right there. They are great in God's eyes when they quietly get on with serving others, no matter what the cost of them. Humble, self-sacrificial service. That is what is great in the eyes of God. That is what Jesus wants to see in his followers. That's what he wants to see at 6.45. He wants to see servants. He wants to see us serving one another and serving the world together in love. Why? It's because it's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't just say the mark of my followers is that they serve. When Jesus is talking about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about himself. Because he is the one who will give up his life for his enemies. Jesus says, do as I do. And that's why verse 45 is so amazing. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a lot of you would know that verse off by heart because you led at kid's quest last week. You've been around church long enough. If I said, you know, Mark 10, 45, do you know what that one? Like, oh, Jesus gave his life. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know it. And because we know it so well, it loses its power on us. It loses the power of the verse and the words because we, yeah, Jesus, he's the servant king. And we just skate over it. Yeah, that's what Jesus is like. Jesus is like that. He's the guy who goes around serving people. Of course, yeah. But Jesus says, the son of man. So he's talking about the one from the book of Daniel. The one who would ride the clouds at the end of time to the ancient of days himself, to God himself. And God would give him all authority and all dominion and all power for all time. The son of man, the king of the universe. Jesus is saying, that is who I am. I'm the one with all power and all authority and I have it for all time, and I've come into the world, so by all rights, every single one of you should be on your knees, bowing down and worshipping me right now and doing everything I say. But with that in mind, he says, verse 45, "But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The man who is God himself did not come into this world so that we might serve him, but that he might serve us. And we take this for granted, but that is earth shattering. And his greatest act of service is to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he died to pay the ransom price, and the price was his own blood. The one who deserves all power and honor and glory was willing to be despised because he loves you. You see, the essence of Christianity really isn't at first that I serve Jesus, it's actually the opposite. He has served me. We are the served before we are servants. Because don't ever think that you can say to people, look at all the things that I've done, all the things I do for Jesus. That is nothing. That's nothing compared to the significance of what he has done for us. Because you see, don't we want to be a church? Don't we want to be followers of Jesus who serve each other like this? So let me ask you, how are you serving and you might help out with the PowerPoint, the sound, or you might kind of help out with some scripture teaching here or there, or the kids' programs. You might help out on Sundays or throughout the week. You've got to ask the question, do I really serve in a meaningful way? Or at 6.45, am I more the served at church? It's really worth asking. But if the response to this sermon was that five more people would join the Germinate team, Jackie would be happy, but I think would really miss the point. This is about a fundamental attitude shift that you get when you know Jesus. To be like our Lord, Jesus says, I want you to have an attitude like me, an attitude that is willing to give up my rights for the good of others. Don't we want to be a people that the world could look at us and say that church loves God And loves each other by the way they serve him wholeheartedly. And with that in mind, we come to the last part of tonight's passage. With that ringing in our ears, Mark gives us this one last account to finish the chapter. And Jesus and his followers, they're on the way to Jericho. And this blind man, Bartimaeus, calls out there in verse 47, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And in Mark, this actually happens a few times. It's the blind people who truly see who Jesus is and why he came. This guy is blind, but he sees more clearly than his disciples and Jesus' disciples about who Jesus is. And so Jesus asks this blind man, What do you want? And the blind man says, I want to see. And Jesus says, Your faith has healed you. And Jesus is saying to Bartimaeus, You get it. You trust in me. You have had faith in me and my power and what I've come to do. And you see, this blind man had 20-20 spiritual vision. He saw what others couldn't. That Jesus really is the Messiah. And that when the Messiah comes, so do great things. And this Messiah, he's headed on his way to Jerusalem to ransom sinners back for God but he still has time for a man in need. He still has time to show compassion as he heads towards his final destination. But do you like this blind man? Do you really get who this great king is? Do you get what he came to do? That he he came that you might live. He came that you might be saved. He came that you might be brought back to God and he exhausted the cup of the wrath of God that we might serve God and each other let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. We thank you for this great King that you sent into the world. We thank you that although he deserved all glory, honor, and power, he willingly came, gave himself, and served us. Help us to remember that, that we might passionately and wholeheartedly serve you and each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.